Hello, and welcome to the Pragmatic Live podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management and product marketing professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calagiris, Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Institute, and your host for this episode. I am very pleased to be joined today by Diane Pearson. She is one of our uh, most extraordinary instructors. She brings to us 20 years experience. She's got product management, product marketing, executive leadership experience at big companies, uh, Dun & Bradstreet, Bradstreet, LexisNexis. She's also started her own company. She's built teams big and small, and she brings just a great perspective to our show. Welcome, Diane. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I know we've talked a little bit about this topic that we're going to cover today a few times, and it's a scenario that I know you've seen, right? You've hired a new team member three months in, and they're just not delivering, right? They looked so good on paper. You were so excited. But the current team is much more attuned to how we do things. So really, how do we address this? What is wrong? What went wrong with this great new hire on paper, and can it be fixed? So Diane, a problem you've heard, you've had, yes? Oh, yes. And, you know, on both sides of the desk, I've, I've done this. I've been the person hired, and I have been the hiring manager. And I learned a lot from both sides. In my first job, and you mentioned um, one of the companies I'd worked with, uh, the first company I worked with, my career was almost over before it began. I had started with this company and uh, very quickly changed bosses. So I hadn't been there very long and I got a new boss. Uh, my new boss and I, let's call him Jack, he and I were nothing alike, or so I thought. We had a lot of metrics in this job that we were measured by. One of them, however, was not getting work in on a daily basis. And he was a stickler for this. Uh, our work was due on a monthly basis. We did reports on businesses. And he was a stickler for having these done on a daily basis. My first manager had been cool as long as we got the work in done by work done by the end of the month. Jack was not. But I figured I was so good at my job, it wouldn't matter if I just ignored this weird opinion of my new boss. So I turned in my reports to meet the monthly deadline, but not on a regular daily or even weekly basis. As time went on, I knew I was not clicking with this boss, but I just figured he had his own favorites and those people were brown nosers. <laughs> they were just the <laughs> suck-ups. They were wrong. You know, I was doing great. I was knocking my numbers out of the park. Everything was fine. Uh, I only first realized that something was really wrong when he took me off a training project that I had been assigned to, which was a precursor to promotion and management. Everybody went through this, this training project uh, helping other people come along. He did this and told me that he did it because I hadn't turned in my reports regularly that month. And that got my attention. I was really mad. I was, I was going to go to him and give him a piece of my mind. Happily, before I did that, I went to a friend of mine who was re- very well regarded by this boss. And I asked her what was up. And I was venting to her. And she said, Diane, look, uh, we all know we don't have to get the work in before the month end, but if we don't, our editors and other people down the line get jammed up and they can't meet their deadlines. Jack really hates to see that lack of consideration for the rest of the team. And the light went on. And I just thought, wow, um, how could I be so inconsiderate? I mean, that's just horrible. And it had never dawned on me. 
so obviously, instead of going and being confrontational with my boss, I, I went and I apologized. I began turning in my work at least a little bit every day instead of big piles at the end of the week or, frankly, usually at the end of the month. And this changed his opinion of me. We got to be really good colleagues, great working relationship. He helped me get promoted. So I learned a lot from this. Uh, one was that managers often have a really good reason for preferences and work style. Even if it's something that doesn't seem to be part of the written rules, it's usually something that's going to help you get along with the rest of the team, help you with that what we do here piece of the job. The other thing I learned is they might not always tell you what it is. So they may keep telling you, you know, I really want you to do this. I really want you to do this. And you may ignore it thinking, yeah, okay, that's your weird quirk because they haven't communicated it. So the third thing I figured out, even if there's not an obvious justification, I mean, for Jack, this was a really obvious justification. I was being considerate to other team members. I was being thoughtless. Sometimes there isn't that good a reason. And even in those cases, we have to support the boss. Part of our job is to make their job easier, and they've got things that help them that they like. But the other thing I realized is, as I became a manager, as I became a leader, was that I was, I was going to lay those out for people who worked for me because it was going to help keep people in jobs. And so when I became a leader, and, and after several years, I, I hired somebody who, who came to work for me and was a real flashback with this <laughs> Like, oh, okay, um, I didn't do what I should have done. I hadn't spelled out a lot of the soft expectations. And the company we were working for had been founder-led. Over half the employees had been with that comp company for over 15 years. And, and so there was a way of doing things. When Robert, and, and let's call him Robert, came to work for me, his response to a lot of my requests were usually along the lines of, like, I've got this. Leave me alone. I know how to do my job. I, I'd ask him, you know, Robert, hey, I've got to go brief our CEO on a summary of this latest product initiative. Can you boil down the research into just a few bullets? And he'd say, well, you need the, re the detail to really understand it. Sometimes I'd ask, well, Robert, um, can you make getting that case study completed a priority? We, we need that done by the end of the month. And he'd say, well, but that's not as important as getting this backlog prioritized. He came late to meetings. He wouldn't work with anybody below his own title. And he, and he fell back on saying, trust me, instead of presenting data a lot. And people started coming to me complaining about him, including our CEO, who was my boss. And we went through a very specific process of, of re-onboarding Robert. And, and I went through laying out some of the quirks of the organization and, you know, for a while he resisted it. But then as we started having the conversation, he got into it because one day he said, this explains so much. He had come from a very big organization and they didn't deal with people below their own titles. It was very formal, very structured, and it was considered stepping on the toes of people who worked on your team. If you talked to people above or below you, it was, it was actually an insult, where in our culture, if you didn't do that, you were considered a snob. And so we started having these conversations, and his performance started to improve. And it wasn't really so much that he was doing his job better, the job itself, the functional part. It was that he 
he was navigating the organization and adding value better because he was. And, and so I, it really, in all these cases across throughout my career and with people I've talked to in class, it's amazing how this can be the challenge inside organizations. They look good on paper, they're not delivering what's going on. So I have to tell you, Diane, one of the things I love every time we do a podcast is that you make me question myself about can I be a better manager? And every time I talk to you, you take uh, what are fairly complex, big learnings and you boil it down to something. And it always just makes me go, oh, right? Because there's all kinds of, of things like this that you have your team do. And I, and I very much try for transparency. So I feel like they might disagree. Uh, but when a new thing comes about, I do a good job of explaining it. But the problem is I explained it to those people that were here at the time. And then a new person comes in and that's just the way the world works and you have to work there. And, it, and you know, I have a maybe part of me that feels like I've already explained this once. It was clear then, but, but the, the sort of tribal knowledge and context around it doesn't move forward. And, and I find that that are the new people where I have the most tension because the part of it is my tension with them. Like, why can't they just, I, I was pretty clear on what we asked. Right. But what? But there's also tension on the rest of the team because they do these things that may seem odd, but they know they do them for a reason. And they try to coach these people along because I have a most amazing team, right? And they try to avoid all these pitfalls. But again, without there, none of us are providing the context and understanding of that. Such a good point. Well, and, and Rebecca, I, having known you for the years that I have, I, I know that you're a terrific leader and you are transparent and you have a terrific team because in part at least, because they've got a really terrific leader. But you're right, we, we all have these things we do and we, we know why. You said tribal knowledge and I always called it ambient knowledge. It's not written down anywhere, it's just out there and it's, it's almost something we do instinctively. And you're right, it's, it's, not, un, it's, it's not intended to exclude, it's just we don't explain it. No. And, and yet it's so critical to properly mapping things through. But now the other thing is, so, so is it a series of conversations? Like how do you transfer this ambient knowledge? This, there can be quite a bit of it. Uh, is it just more onboarding conversations? Did you die? Is it like a playbook of how to do this or what, what kind of best practices do you have around that? Well, you know, I, I would divide some of the behaviors into what you can do during the hiring process what you can do right after you hire. So in the first onboarding, and then what you might be able to do to salvage it if something's gone wrong. So during the hiring process, I, one of the things is don't hire to hire. And even five years ago, this wouldn't have been a bullet I would have had on this list because it didn't used to be that, that we had to hire to hire. You know, five, six, seven years ago, there were a lot of people vying for jobs. Yeah. Now, it is one of our biggest challenges is finding people to interview for a job. Not good people, anybody. <laughs> They're having difficulty. I hear this in class after class from, from leaders at the director and, and VP and leader level. We can't find anybody to interview, not just people who are uh, a sort of fit. I looked today online just out of curiosity. I looked on in, uh, Indeed, and in Austin alone, my hometown, uh, there are over 2,000 open product manager and product marketing manager jobs. 
And it's tempting for a lot of reasons. It's tempting because we've got a big workload. It's tempting because the budget might get cut or the, the, the body might get taken away. It's tempting to get a body in the seat. And I've, so, I've talked to a lot of managers who've said in so many words, you know what? I had a bad feeling about this person, but I needed to get somebody in the job. So first off, if you've got a bad feeling, trust your gut. Leave the job open, justify the head count in other ways, but, but don't leave, don't, don't fill the job just because you feel like you've got to fill it with somebody. And it's so tempting to do that, but that's, that's always the wrong thing to do. And those often turn out badly. So the second one would be hire the right skills. And, and that sounds pretty self-evident. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all trying to hire the right skills. But what I have discovered over my career, what I've heard in classes and, and discussions I've had with, with people who, who booked our classes, is that industry knowledge is much less important than the ability to perform the functional role. What I, excuse me, what I hear in classes and what I experienced is that industry knowledge is much less important than the ability to perform the functional role and to be flexible about how you go about it. A really good product manager is by nature, by nature and by skill building, somebody who listens to the market and responds with solutions to their problems. I, I used to call this being passionately dispassionate. They love to solve problems. They're passionate about it, but they can leave their own biases at the door and they can learn about a market with, with open eyes and, and an open mind. And if you think about it, existing industry expertise plays a really minor role in that success. Also, it, it can usually be found elsewhere in the organization. Usually we've got quite a few industry experts, but not a lot of market experts and not a lot of functional experts who are really good at being passionately dispassionate. What I tell people is don't rule out product managers from other market verticals if they can describe how they succeeded in spite of that initial lack of experience with your market. Now, another thing in terms of hiring those right skills is that an excellent product manager is somebody who can navigate those internal channels. They're good at, at gathering information. They're generous with sharing information, sharing credit, respecting other people's perspectives inside the company too. But they then prioritize using facts as well as that understanding they got from inside the company. So they'll, they'll thank the sales rep who takes them out on calls. They'll, they'll thank the industry expert, maybe somebody who's been in the industry for 25 years for sharing that perspective but they'll combine that with other facts to make decisions. And I think that balance is terrific and, and not always easy to find. I would ask them how they've done that in the past. There are also people who understand that teams have idiosyncrasies. They, they do business in a certain way. Very few ways are wrong. There's almost no wrong way to do this if it's based on the market data and based on a, a uniform desire to succeed. And you know what? there are going to be pet projects. We serenity now on that. We're, we're going to have to accept the fact that there are some pet projects. There are some things we do not because they're logical. We're going to do things for our biggest customers even when we know nobody else wants it. We're going to build features into products even though we know nobody will use it. A really good product manager understands that this will happen, but they still bring the data to the table to prioritize. And, and they understand that sometimes we're going to do things that 
that just don't fit that logic. You know, it's interesting too, because, and I think along the lines of, of those points too, is, is I think of a good product manager and product marketer as having strong empathy, right? An ability to understand their customers and, and what matters to them and sort of um, mirror back to them, right? So to be able to empathize and to, and to talk with a bunch of different customers with different problems in, in the way that matters to them. And I think what we need what we want to figure out in the interview is can they take that same empathy skill and do they point it inward at the company and understand that it may seem weird that we're doing this thing, but I can see why it matters to the CEO or I understand why that salesperson, um, it's hard for them to always find the materials we want or, or whatever those frustrations are. If they can turn those same skill sets in inward and if they have a history of doing that versus of the, you know, well, we would have done even better if X department hadn't always been a block or Y, then I think that's a a great sign as well. I think empathy is the word. I think you're exactly right. And and it does have to be an empathy you can not only leverage in your job, but also, as you say, in the interactions you have inside the company. Because really, everybody is trying to do a good job. There are very, very few people sincerely trying to to sabotage the business or even the new person. We'll talk a little bit about that later, but most of us are trying to do the best we can and and we've got something to say and we've got contributions. And so, yeah, have a little empathy and and I think you can hire that, you can hear that in people's in people's stories and their examples. All right. So let's assume that we've done these things to find the per- person who looks right on paper, who sounds right in their interactions, and then we're bringing them on board. How do we help with that transfer of the ambient knowledge? Well, let's first of all make sure that the overt knowledge has been put out there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point too. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know, we we know how that happens. The research that you do, which I I love our annual survey because it it just is so. It resonates so much in class. I have to tell you, every time I'm in class and we talk about the survey, so many nods, so many discussions, and, and everybody knows that titles are a mess. Our research shows that about 40% of product managers write promotional copy, and about 40% of product marketing managers write requirements. Every company's different. So don't just discuss titles and, and you know cut and paste those responsibilities from last year's job description. Get into detail about what the role will own and what ownership means in your organization. And and I'll tell you, I've used the pragmatic framework for this for years. I took this on interviews. When I was interviewing for jobs, I used it to help define job requirements. Uh, I just worked with a student who was putting out a, um, a, a job requisition, and we went through the framework. I've had people bring him into interviews and say, okay, your job says the title is this. What do you mean by that? I love this level of clarity. We have to get somebody who's, who will work with the team. And so it's important we, we're very honest about what the team does, how the team works, and what our expectations are. Um, inside a company, sometimes we'll say yes. Again, going back to that, we got to get somebody for this role. We'll agree to things we're not really comfortable with or, or that go counter the, to the culture. I'm really glad that we as, as, an, or as organizations as a whole are becoming more flexible about things like work from home, flexible hours. But if the organization is, is 
everybody's in the office at, at 7 a.m. or everybody hangs around until 7 p.m., if we hire somebody who can't do that, they're going to be excluded from conversations. Uh, if your team slacks, even if they're five feet away from each other, or if the group traditionally they go out to lunch every day and they, you know, they hang out, they do business over lunch. If, if these folks aren't going to, to fit into that pattern, it's going to be hard for them to succeed. Not because it's their fault or their problem. It's just the fact is you've got a pattern that exists. Unless we're willing to break that pattern down inside the company, there's going to be a challenge. I stepped on a lot of toes once going into an organization that was much less formal from an organization that had been much more formal because of the way I signed my emails. I said, best regards, Diane. And this was considered incredibly obnoxious by the whole company. <laughs> the point where people were, like I started getting, like I started getting, uh, what do you call those? They're not salutations. It's the last thing, but whatever it is, I started getting more, like mockeries of this and it dawned on me. And I went to my boss and I said, clearly this is wrong. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, this is a deal. And I, I stopped doing it and I, I made fun of myself in a couple meetings and we got past it, but you never know. We have to be diligent for these cultural misfires that can cause big, big problems. I could have just as easily, because in this job I was in a senior level role, I could have just as easily gotten nasty about it. But I thought, okay, first of all, it's it, this would be really silly to get nasty about, but it's a cultural thing. I heard that one of the things that brought down a senior executive at Amazon several years ago was the fact that this guy got rid of the free aspirin in the break rooms. You never know. Wow. wow clarify the role itself, the real role, but we've got to be able to articulate these, these things. And so that's the first thing, just clarify the role, then broaden this onboarding process. You know, in a lot of organizations, onboarding is handed off to HR and that's what we think of it. They, you know, they show you where the break room is. They give you the, the employee manual. They show you how to fill out your insurance paperwork and your tax paperwork and good luck. And that's not really onboarding. Uh, we certainly have to make sure that, that the onboarding process includes actual education on not only users, but buyers of our products, all the official things, positioning statements. So we, we talk a lot about positioning statements in our organization and in our training. Have them read the positioning statements. Have them read the buyer personas and the user personas, or, or you know maybe make this kind of fun. Get them the information they need. And if they're going to be working on specific products, get them the history of these products. Have them sit down with somebody. If we don't have it written down, have them sit down with the, the, the tribal elder, if you will, and, and get that knowledge. Get them immersed in the day-to-day. -day. Have them do ride-alongs with sales, sit-ins with customer service, have them hang out with IT at some of their meetings. Most of all, get them out into the market and have them read the market research that's been done to date. Have them, have them get embroiled in the history a bit so they really understand what happened before. I, I think that that's one of the biggest things in companies where, where these employees don't get, get um, onboarded into the way things are done here is the organization has this feeling that they don't respect the history. 
And I think sometimes we all need to look at each other when we're new to companies and say, have I, have I respected the history enough? And, and I think we need to make that part of the onboarding process. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help you elevate your product, your company, and your career. 